Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. It is Monday morning, which means that we do, in fact, have a new episode for you today. I'm Andy Alexander, and today we are having our first episode on Curanderismo. And I am joined by a fantastic group of guests today who all work on Curanderismo in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands area. And joining us for our roundtable discussion today is Brett Hendrickson, Jennifer Koshatka-Seaman, and our RSP Features Editor, Israel Dominguez. I will let them introduce themselves to you so that you can familiarize yourself with their voices for the transcript purposes. So, Jennifer, can you tell us a little about yourself? Hi, so my name is Jennifer Koshatka-Seaman, and I am a historian. I teach at Metropolitan State University of Denver. Um, I teach U.S. history classes and also Latin American history and multicultural America. And I wrote a book on two curanderos, Teresa Urrea and Don Pedrito Jaramillo, called Borderlands Curanderos. Thank you for having me. Yes, so glad that you're here. Uh, Brett. My name is Brett Hendrickson. I'm a professor of religious studies at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania, which is in Eastern Pennsylvania. It's a little liberal arts college. I teach in Latino Latinx religious history and also religion in Latin America and religion in public life and religion and healing. And I, my publications have been in that area. My, my, um, my first book is called Border Medicine, and it's a history of the transcultural elements of curanderismo in the United States. I also have uh, some other research about the Santuario de Chimayo in New Mexico, and most recently, um, a textbook, Mexican-American Religions uh, with Rutledge, which just came out last year. Excellent. And Israel, our features editor. Hello, my name is Israel Dominguez. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm currently in the throes of dissertation writing, and my project is about curanderismo <laughs> um, and decolonization in as best as I can manage the ways that curanderismo acts as a framework to help empower help centralize the voices of the marginalized throughout history and also in the present day. Well, thank you so much to all of you for being here today. I'm very excited because this is going to be our first podcast officially on Curanderismo for the RSP. You know, as we move now into the end of our, our 11th season, 11th year. So I'm, I'm very oh, excited wow. for this discussion, That's right? Great. Like, This is fantastic for us, and I'm so grateful to each of you for being willing to chat today. So for people who aren't familiar with Corondorismo, or for people who have only kind of heard about this, maybe briefly in an American religions class or a Latin American religions class, like it's not something that, at least in my experience, has a lot of prevalence within religious studies. So... I kind of want to just start off with like, what, what is Grandurismo, right? What are we talking about and who practices this? Where is it practiced and what, what's going on? So can, how about we just dive in there and then we can see where that takes us. Great. Well, Grandurismo is a, it's a healing tradition that has been 
active in the Iberian Peninsula and throughout South America, Latin America, and you know the Latino parts of the United States for centuries now. I think it's often talked about as kind of a, a combination of different elements that have come together in a way that is healing and efficacious for the people who practice it. So on, on the one hand, you have Iberian Catholicism, which has a lot of reliance on the saints, uh, devotion to the saints, and understanding how this, the, the role that, that saints play in helping people maintain their health, combine that with European and also Islamic understandings of the way the body is put together in these sort of pre-medieval European with different humors and different forces in the body that have to be kept in balance. From the Americas, there are elements that have also entered into curanderismo. Specifically, I think people talk a lot about, first of all, the pharmacopoeia, or rather, the, you know, the herbal remedies and lots of different medicines that people <laughs> use and have used for many generations here in, in the this hemisphere uh, and the kind of the mastery of that flora. The other thing I think uh, that comes up a lot is, is sort of different understandings of the soul as being a part of the body that, or a part of the human being rather, that that is related deeply to health and that it can be harmed. And so curanderos, curanderas, one of the things they've done, I think, as, as part of that sort of stream of curanderismo has helped people keep their souls in good health. Overall, that's a longish answer. A short answer might be that it's just a combination way of healing that relates to both American indigenous ways of healing and understanding the body and Catholic ways of, of healing and understanding the body. That's how I would answer the question, I guess. And I, you said it's not prevalent in religious studies. I'm probably talking too much. I'll shut up in a minute. But I guess I feel like I'm like, I must be in my own corner because I hear about it all the time. But uh, I think that's just maybe the nature of the discipline that we have all of our subfields and religion and healing and things like that. So anyway, I'll pass, pass the baton. I would just add to that. So Brett's book, Brett's work, we met doing research many years ago. So your book and conversations have, are foundational to my understandings of coenderismo. So everything Brett said, and I think one of the things that I might add to that, and I think Israel, it sounds like maybe your work also is, goes along this way, is the ways in which some people have talked about coenderismo coming out of colonialism, coming out of this sort of wound of the colonial world. I made a note that your work is decolonizing that. I've heard some coenderos talk about it as a way of decolonizing. So it's a way to heal this, these soul wounds in a, in a human, a susto, but also more broadly in a social group. And so I, I was really influenced by that aspect of the definition in terms of thinking about it in my work historically. So I just, just to tag that onto what Brett said so, so perfectly. The biggest place I want to put some emphasis is really this issue of healing and that it's not necessarily just physical ailments, although that is one of the biggest parts of it, but it is, I think, we got Brett gesturing toward this when he's talking about the soul, but also a healing of the through less physical parts of yourself, right? That might be a contentious way of putting soul, but there's a concern with this holistic kind of balance, right? This, this idea that all the parts of you need to be in harmony with the other parts of you. I grew up in the tradition. My mother was a curandera, although she would never admit to that under pain of violence, she would very much not admit to that. And there are a whole bunch of other underlying issues to that, which thankfully for me, fuel my dissertation project. But all this is to say that I grew up seeing it and, and thinking about it and hearing about it. And it was very much a part of my life that I sort of took for granted. I assumed that every other kid in elementary school in my class encountered the same sort of things when they went home and they did not. So I learned very quickly to not really talk about it very openly because there's usually a lot of judgment about it, which is a shame. I, I want to come back to this idea, this emphasis on 
and sort of general balance on, on, on healing all the parts of you that maybe you aren't necessarily completely aware of. And I, I think I, I side with Andy here. I, it's probably easier for me to see, given the level of the career that I'm at, you know, still just sort of in the dredges of the PhD. But I very much have to consistently explain the basics of things about curanderismo to other religious studies scholars. So I'm going I'm to side with Andy here on this one. I mean, I'm not trying to start a war. I you know, just at least in my experience. But yeah, in the past few years, I think that I have, I've certainly seen it discussed more, or at least acknowledged in some classes on American religions. But at least when I was taking these courses or TAing for them, yeah. it wasn't something that was regularly on the syllabus or discussed much, if discussed at all. Yeah. Can I just respond to something Israel said? I mean, as, a, as like a cultural outsider to Kuenderismo, when I entered this topic, it was for other reasons, but I was the, that person that had no idea. I was like, is this a cult? <laughs> is this like, and I've heard those things from sometimes when I give talks or whatever, the, is it a movement, right? Is it a religious movement? So I think there, at least in my world, I see that there is that need for a definition. And then to also say that I have students, I teach a lot of Latinx students um, at Metro State where I am. And I sometimes share my research and we talk about the border and then we talk about cultures combining and things. And I can't tell you how many times I've had students come to my office after class when I share my research and they're like, I can't believe you, you write about Quenderismo and like my aunts or my mom or my grandma, my, uh, they did these things and they're almost sometimes like kind of whispering about it. It's like, it's this thing that they have to protect or that there's a stigma, I guess, that you said. And that always, you know, for me, I'm like, I'm like, that's so cool. Here I am, you know, like the white lady, like, but I try to be actually more sensitive than that. But they're like, they trust me, I think, to say that. And I and I see this anyway, I see that. And I find that very interesting. That stigmatizing that your mom would say, don't tell anybody. It's, so it's really interesting to me to hear that. Yeah. I mean, what isn't a cult, right? Political. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there is a stigma for sure, which you've identified. But then also everyone knows where to go at the same time, right? Like in the neighborhood, you don't really like no one ever came to my house to hang out, which was fine. But you also know that that's the house to go to when you have stomach trouble that medicine from the doctor isn't quite remedying, right? Or, you know, there's a ghost in your house and it's not leaving you alone. Then you know that this is the house you go to. So even though you don't talk about it, there's a stigma, there's some kind of sort of, I don't know, baseline derision more often than not, everyone still knows the things to do, right? In air quotes. I realize this is radio, so air quotes over video won't really make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> we'll transcribe it. It's fine. Thank you. But yeah, so it's it's secret knowledge, but also it isn't secret knowledge and you don't talk about it, but you do talk about it if you want to insult people. So it's this weird kind of, I don't know, It's there's a, a lot of tension at various levels. I think an interesting question that came up in just in the discussion right now is, is it a religious movement? Is it a religion? Is it a standalone religion? What's the definitional mm -hmm. category that we're supposed to put this thing in? And I think that, you know, it, that's not a clear answer. It could be what Israel is saying. It's something that people in communities know about and can access that may be below the radar or, you know, even derided, but still very essential and important to have access to. It could be something 
as simple as some family traditions that just get passed down in terms of how to care for certain illnesses or, or you know certain prayers that you might say. And then I think on, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a continuum, but then there are other, I think, communities of curanderas and curanderos that, that have really, I think, come together in different parts, particularly in the United States. I see this happening where it has become a kind of new religious movement that has a real decolonial emphasis and uh, of reclaiming uh, a certain understanding of Latinx identity and and thinking of curanderismo really holistically as a kind of religious movement that even though it has roots that are at least tenuously related to Catholicism is is another way to reconnect with sort of indigeneity among Latinx people and and coming into, you know, establishing kind of a spirituality that goes along with the practice of curanderismo that are there about, about healing community, about putting things right and so on. So I, I think that it can be a lot of different mm-hmm. things for people, depending on where they, in what context they find themselves. I see that. And just my, my research focuses pretty exclusively on these two curanderos, Don Pedrito Jaramillo, who both everyone knows. I know, I know that Israel, this is, he's from your, from your region and, and Brett's written about him. And then also Teresa Urrea, who's a little more popular, but even with these two somewhat famous curanderos from the turn of the century, their practices look really different, even though they were, they're both called curanderos, curanderas. And I think the, uh, the meanings that people attach to both their healing practices and their, their kind of larger, maybe political meetings are different. So, I mean, just in kind of my smaller case studies into these the worlds of these two particular healers, you see this kind of, yes, they're both healers. Yes, they're both healing their community. And in it's spiritual and it's holistic, but the healing looks really different. And just to, I had an interview with a young woman that somehow found, found me and she's a high school student and somewhere on the East Coast, brilliant young woman. And she's wanting to research her culture of Quindarismo more. And so she read uh, the famous um, woman who glows, glows in the dark. And she was really energized by this. And so she sees it as a decolonizing project. And so I, you know, explained to her that at first, you know, I was like, I really, my work really is really focused in a certain time period, but she wanted to know if Teresa Urea or Don Pedrito did limpias and if they healed sustos, which is speaking to Brett, what you're saying about the kind of maybe broader movement that, and, and I, and I, I was like, you know, I don't, I never in my research saw evidence that either Don Pedrito or Teresa Rea performed Olympia as I understand them or as I've seen them performed by Cuarenderas today. Not to say that they didn't, though. That's just, you know, but it, it opened up a really interesting conversation with this one young woman of like the of just the very variations of this practice, like the fluidity and like the capaciousness of it to have to, to enclose so many different things, um, but also so historically constructed as well. So just kind of wanted to chime in and and share that, that conversation. So you've each touched on this a little, but I want to unpack the historical development of curanderismo a little bit more, right? So it has roots in Catholicism and roots in indigenous practices of healing. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the historical development and prevalence of curanderismo in the borderlands, as well as some of the differences and nuances in these practices, because of course, they aren't all gonna be exactly the same. First of all, I just want to say that Jen's research, her historical research on turn of the century, curanderismo is like without 
par. I mean, she's really dug oh. into so many awesome things and uncovered stories about Teresa Orrea and Caramillo that were unknown and, and, and her arguments about them are just great. So I hope we get to talk some more about that too in a minute. But I, I want to say quickly, like historically at least, that it's hard to access. I mean, it's the problem of the archive when studying people of color and marginalized people. I think in some ways there's a problem of the archive. But one of the things that I think we see, particularly from maybe the, the late 1800s, the early 1900s, the mid 1900s even, is this idea that curanderismo is, is a persisting folk tradition for people who have no other option. So that if they had access to biomedicine, to clinics, to doctors, to nurses, to more education, to more economic wherewithal, that this would be a folk tradition like others that has been replaced with modern medicine. And so I think that with this whole like secularization narrative kind of plays a part in this. Uh, and so Partially, I think one of the reasons why we see nowadays or, you know, post-civil rights understandings of the border from people's perspectives, like scholars from the border talking about their experiences, you know, giving their own history. I think we can see that curanderismo doesn't merely exist as something that you would do if you can't get a prescription. It's a, a very important religious, cultural, ethnic practice that makes community, sustains community, and and I think also is, in, I don't maybe I'm going too far here a little bit, but in a way is a, is a gift as well, I think, to that, at least in some ways, is 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 on offer that, in, that I don't think that curanderos are trying to get everyone to become a curandero, but there there's a, you know, it's, it's not an exclusive sort of community either. You know, people, one of the things that I've researched is, you know, how people outside of Latinx communities have interacted with curanderos over the years and found healing from them and with them. So, yeah, I'd say that's part of the history of, of, of overcoming that secularization narrative or, or, or as with so many things in religious studies, showing some of the flaws with that narrative and, and seeing how it develops after the, that kind of gets put, put on a shelf where maybe it belongs. That's such a great, I love the way you framed that, that this persistent story, and I saw this in my research, and is that if all else fails, if the doctors can't do it, right, if it doesn't heal itself, then you begrudgingly go to the curandero, right? And even in some of the healing stories about Don Pedrito, there's kind of that narrative kind of comes up again, again, you'll have these stories of such and such person had these bad headaches, and he went to all the doctors, and, and the doctors couldn't heal them. So it almost becomes a kind of trope, in a way, it's at least in Don Pedrito's case, I see that. And what I love about like, I think of Americo Paredes and his writing about the intercultural dress, how he kind of takes that, but then turns it around and says, and then the curandero is smarter than the doctor. I, I see a lot of that kind of playing with that idea, but just to respond to that, but I also wanted to respond to the historical piece here as well. The same period that, that Brett just talked about, this turn of the century period with like the rise of the secular narrative and kind of what I focus on pretty strongly in my chapters is the state power or other kinds of institutional powers that work to not just suppress certain communities of color, often marginalized communities and their beliefs, but also any kind of success they might have. So for one example, looking at Teresa Urrea, here's this young woman in, in Sonora, Sinaloa, Sonora, Mexico. She gets this gift of healing and very quickly becomes like famous. I mean, by all accounts, right? I mean, papers, there hundreds of thousands of people are coming to see her. And here she is healing people by many, many accounts successfully. And you have the government of Porfirio Diaz sending spies in to figure out what's going on. But but of course, she's also saying things, you know, against the, the Diaz regime and, and all of that. So she is this kind of political figure. 
But in doing the research on her and looking at the archives of the Porfirian government and the, the files that they were watching her and like noting everything and the way that they talk about her practice and the way that they talk about the people that come see her makes me think of Israel, what you're talking about, like we it's embraced and yet it's also stigmatized because you'll see these these Mexican you know elites going, these superstitious people, right? Of course, they'll believe her because they're indigenous or because they're poor. So of course, they're just so, so and, and, and of course, they're Catholic. So they're just mindless, superstitious followers. And so she's manipulating them. And that kind of discourse, I think, hasn't completely gone away. I think it's kind of, at least in, in some friends that I've talked to other from one friend I have who's a musician. And when I was first working on this, I was like, Alan, I'm, I'm researching Coranderos. And what do you, you know? And he's like, oh. He was very, very much like superstitious. It's embarrassing to me. But you see that in the archives that for, with Teresa Urea that they use that kind of trope of these people are, are, aren't smart. They don't have scientific knowledge. And then that then justifies all kinds of things, kicking her out of Mexico, taking her land, all, all sorts of things. And with Don Pedrito as well, like you see the American Medical Association, Texas Medical Association, trying to accuse him of fraud and doing all these things that some people did in that period, but he wasn't. But it's all connected kind of racially to, it's like, well, quote unquote, those people don't have science. Those people don't have knowledge if they did. But then again, of course, it's used as a way to kind of also suppress it, dismiss it, suppress it, but it, but it persists. Um. Yeah, I wonder if we could unpack those issues of power and identity a little bit more, particularly with regard to the borderlands. Of course, Curanderismo is not only practiced in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, but it is very much associated with that area. And, and I think that its placeness is really quite relevant to these these types of issues of power of identity particularly considering that curanderismo is sometimes classified as a quote unquote folk religion right and it's it's also that that classification that interests me the the category of folk religion because is doing a lot of work and that work particularly with marginalized social groups is to essentialize and reduce it to be something that we don't have to worry about or fear potentially, right? But whether it's popular or academic discourses, that folk category or classification works to further marginalize these groups. And makes it necessarily other in relation to, in this case, dominant religions, Christianity, what have you. And so I'm very interested in how these discourses work to perpetuate that marginalization. And I wonder if you could speak a little more to this. I don't want to dominate the conversation, but just really quickly, because I think everyone probably has a lot to say about this. But I love that question, because I think what you're saying is that it's happened in the academy, what's happened with Cuindarismo through time and through these other structures of power to dismiss it, to belittle it, right, to dismiss it. It's almost happening. I mean, it's not. I mean, obviously, the work of 
the people we're seeing here and, and then the, and the and Brett's book that's come out, I'm sure is, is remedying this, but, but there is this tradition and I is a historian. I mean, people kind of looked at me like, what are you studying? Mm, like that's a topic, right? You know, and I really fought for it. And I, I talked to, but, but, but it's this idea. Yeah, it's cute. It's in the Texana section in the bookstore, you know, you know, or it's, you know, it's, it's folk history. It's, it's, which is often like also marginalized. So the fact to take it seriously, to treat this as an, a system of healing and a religion and an intellectual system, right? Um, I think is really important. I thought, yeah, Israel, do you want to, I mean, I know you've thought a lot about like the intellectual part of this, the ideological bases of some of these things. And yeah, sure. I, I really love the way that you phrased the question, Andy. I think it's really, it, it highlights the sort of I think crux of the whole matter when you're talking about that this is present wherever borderlands are, right, um, was I think one of the hearts of, of the way you were phrasing this. And I think it's particularly salient for us to think about Gloria and Saldua's way of talking about the border and the borderlands when we think about curanderismo. She opens up her first book, Borderlands La Frontera, within the first couple of pages by giving us her definition of border and how that's different from borderlands, right? That the borderlands is not just the political boundary on a map, but it's where cultures come into contact with each other. And then she pushes us a bit further and she says, what if the body is the border? What if we think of ourselves as as the borderlands? And I think that's also really salient for yeah. talks on curanderismo. And so you're, you're really hitting the nail on the head here. You know, you're going to find it throughout, quote, Latin America. But Peruvian curanderismo is going to look different from Mexican-American borderlands curanderismo, right? So so there's that, I think, that we should we should say as well. And then to also sort of to really center in our minds this idea of of cultural contact, like of, of cultural borderlands. Something that I was thinking about over the last few minutes as you all were talking was this moment when I was a kid, my mom always described herself as really Catholic, super, super Catholic. No meat on Fridays, even when it's not Lent. And like we had a picture of the Pope in our house and, you know, like crosses that she would make from blessed palms and like all the things. But she also never went to church. Like she would teach catechism classes when I was a baby. And I think I saw her go to church outside of weddings, maybe twice. Once when I made my first communion and then some other random Christmas time she decided mm -hmm. to go. And so as a kid, I asked her, hey, if you're such a super Catholic, then how come you never go to mass? Because it's kind of a big deal for Catholics usually, right? And she said, no, yeah. um, the, the priests know who I am and they know what I do and they don't agree with it, but I know that I'm right. And that sort of was wow. the mind-blowing moment for me when I realized as an adult in the academy, that she had started giving me sort of the language of decolonizing at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I bring that up because I think it touches very neatly on the topic of like, is it a religious movement? Like, how do the practitioners identify kind of a thing? Because she hands down all the time in herself, in her mind, in her heart was Catholic, no matter how often she did things that other Catholics do not do. And so I think it's just really this convenient and also chaotic, messy mixing of all of these different layers of of culture and society right so i just wanted to to highlight that it can it can get kind of blurry to talk about this although i do think that is one of the charms is that there isn't necessarily an institutional framework for this right like you don't go yeah. to university of mexico city to get a degree in curanderismo or something right like there's no mail order degree that you can get necessarily although that might change thanks to the internet but all this is to say there isn't this structure that you can go and 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 look for guidance and, and official things 
a lot of the the healers that most people are familiar with have this usually this climactic experience near death experience usually some kind of sickness and then they're given this knowledge right there's been language here of, of a gift and that's the word that you use in spanish is a don is a gift that god has given you the gift to spread healing and so there are just all these different layers i think that highlight how it can sort of fit into different cultural spaces if that makes sense thank you for sharing that israel that story about your mother um because it's the story i've kind of heard a little bit before in my research with talking to curanderas curanderos and then emerging in like the story of santa teresa and you you may know this but she when she was in el paso in 1896 and this was kind of at the height of her one of the heights of her popularity there are these border rebellions going on she'd been kicked out of mexico there's those traces in the archive that the, the in several places um that say the parish, the, the Catholic church in El Paso, which was really close to where she was healing in Segundo Barrio, the, the, the word was that the parishioners were told that they could not go to mass if they went to see Santa Teresa. And so I've seen this in a, a couple of newspaper articles at the time. I've reached out to the El Paso diocese. I've had a real hard time. I didn't write about that more in the book because I couldn't get that other perspective. But what I find is, although she in particular, unlike your mother, was very anti, you know, she was anti-clerical. She was part of that kind of Mexican sort of very much, you know, a liberal anti-clericalism. She was like, God is for everyone. But so many of her followers and Don Pedrito, the story of him is that all his followers were Catholic and went to see Don Pedrito. He didn't go to church, but they were going to church, going to get cures from Don Pedrito. No problem. No problem to be both of those things. So, so interesting to hear that story of how that is still kind of a thing. Definitely. You see that just to speak more about the stigma. It's also not something that's isolated to early 20th century political documents or for that kind of archive, right? I've been doing this research for a while, and of course, I'm not alone. But if you look at anthropological literature about South Texas from the 50s and 60s, it's super racist. Look at these Browns and the things that they believe, which they call curanderismo, right? And it's not just the 50s and 60s either. You know, medical anthropology of the 80s and 90s also says, look at the Browns and their curanderismo placebo and how it works for them. So it's still... I, I, the 90s are farther away than I think most of us realize, so there is that. Um, but it's still also quite recent, uh, given the sort of historical timeline, right? Uh, the 90s right. may feel like 10 years ago. They are not, but it is still also not that far away. <laughs> Didn't have to call us out like that, Israel. Wait, Sorry. Yeah, that's there's something you wanted to say? I, I, real quick, I, I think this is, is important for religious studies, at least. I, one of the reasons why I think studying curaderismo and so-called folk traditions like this is so important is because it, I think it actually destabilizes categories like Catholic. I mean, we can say curaderismo is, is messy and fluid, but so is Catholic. I mean, and, and that's, yeah. I think really important, you know, that it's, if Izzy's mom is, is a Catholic and the Pope is a Catholic, well, that's a, you know, we got a lot going on here. And so I think that's one of the things I think is really valuable about about these kinds of traditions that we generally lump into the group that are about cultural contact. And there are other groups that maybe we don't as much, but there, I think there's a lot to learn about the method that we use to study these traditions that are at places of of contact that are really methods that we, we all need to be using in, in so many different well, places. And I think you're, you're right too there. And, and because what comes to mind for me is, is uh, when you say that, Brett, is that 
when it comes to issues of identity, boundary formation, social group formation, right? These are the things that the the borders of those where those contests happen, right? Those where those contests take place are what often, especially for the groups in power, what they want to minimize, what they want to obfuscate from the the narrative, right? Because that's if if it's there, if anyone is aware of these these sort of tensions, these contests, which in my mind are the most interesting part of identities, then it calls into question the stability and the naturalization acceptance of different types of, you know, different identifications, right? And and so I think the same thing in a way is what you're saying, right? Like this is what's happening when we lump all of these, you know, quote unquote folk traditions together and and dismiss them, essentialize them, kind of reduce them to a certain uh you know, general narrative or trope that we can discuss, then it helps to reinforce the perceived stability of the categories that we want to maintain, right? Catholicism, right? Yeah. Protestantism, that, Christianity in general. And, and one of the, the, the salutary results of that is I think it, it kind of breaks down what the other is. And I think allows us to see as well that curanderas and people who practice curanderismo are integrated with so many parts of of American religious history in in, in very palpable, oh. archived, documented ways. One of them that I think is worth mentioning is that the interests both in Mexico and the United States among many people, not only uh, practitioners of curanderismo, but in, in spiritualism or spiritism, which can be a lot of different things itself, but... It, communicating with spirits, sometimes spirits of the dead, in a way that would allow someone to gain wisdom or healing is something that I think was in both of the context of Mexico and the United States, by at least some communities seen as not, it was fringy, but at the same time, it was it was in tune with rhetoric about science, as it was understood at the time, uh, and about human progress. And so I just I think we left this out earlier when I was talking about the, the definitions of curanderismo, that there's also, I think, an element of curanderismo that is, is engaged with a changing understanding of the way forces work together that can be scientific, at least in, in, in historical context, that it can be Catholic in certain contexts. It can be, you know, all these different things. And I think what's notable is that's true for all of us. You know, I, I think, you know, all of us have these different currents in our in. in in, in, in our lives that we draw upon and that, that make perfect sense uh, and are completely congruent in our own experience. It only looks like a mishmash, I think, when we're looking at it from out, you know, out here, out, out from beyond. Could I share a quote from Teresa Urea where she, one of the few um, interviews she gave, she talks about espiritismo and it says so much about kind of what Brett was saying and like her belief system. So, and it combines all these ideas. So she says, and she published this in a newspaper, a Borderlands newspaper. She says, translated into English, if for something I have affinity and if something I try to practice, it is espiritismo because espiritismo is based on the truth and the truth is much greater than all the religions and also because Espiritismo was studied and practiced by Jesus and is the key to all the miracles, all caps, of Jesus and the most pure expression of the religion of the Spirit. And then she goes a little further. 
I suppose as well that science and religion should march in perfect harmony and union, being that science should be the expression of truth and religion. And then she gets very anti-clerical. I think God more adores the atheist, all caps, that loves his brothers and works to acquire science and virtue than the Catholic monks that kill and hate men while proclaiming God. She breaks it down. Yeah, She breaks it down right there. Like she has a vision and an intellectual system. And I think just thinking about women, you know, a gender, a concern of mine is how like so much of what was written about her was like, well, she's just being controlled by her father or she's being controlled by the church. But she had an idea. She had a project um, and knew what she was doing. But just combining all those ideas about science and religion and that they can that they can offer this kind of alternative project of nation in, in this particular yeah. period. This is going back a little bit when um, Israel, you were talking about Gloria Anzaldúa, which I there's a book that I bet you're familiar with but called um, Letras y Limpias by Amanda Ellis. She's at the University of Houston. And um, I was in a, a Zoom with her and um, she so the subtitle of her book is Decolonial Medicine and Holistic Healing in Mexican-American Literature. So I think she's literature studies, um, but she has a whole chapter on that poem La Curandera by Gloria Anzaldúa about the whitening, which I quote at the end of my book. And so this idea of whiteness, that really um, is something I explored a little bit. And and it goes to kind of this, what we're talking about too, in ways in which this practice is either is, is understood or dismissed by those that want to dismiss it. So one of the things that um, I came across in both people's writings about Don Pedrito and Teresa Urrea at that time in diff- different places was that they heal all these throngs of brown people. They heal the throngs of Mexicans, nameless, faceless, right? That word throngs of the enfermos, right? Oh, but then a famous white guy by name, like, and although there's several places where it's like such and such full name, here's this guy, he's a pillar of the community. He came to say Teresa Urrea and she healed him. So therefore she must have something if she could heal a white man. And you saw the same thing when Don Pedrito goes to San Antonio in 1894. Brett, I know you wrote about this too. It's like all these people come, right? But oh, these white people come in the carriage and they heal them. So this kind of, this sort of like whiteness as a way to prove the legitimacy of a healing practice or an intellectual system. And, and which also made me think of the anthropologists because I see that in the, the anthropologists I looked at were only the kind of the turn of the century ones. So now you've whet my appetite to, to read further. But I see that from anthropologists too, that it's all just very, very condescending. But anyway, I just want to kind of throw those things in there as they've come to me hearing these, these comments. I, I mean, that's so much of what my project is about, right, is to deal with decolonizing seriously and earnestly, then you have to talk about race and racialization, the boundaries, the fluidity, the ways that it changes, all of the messiness therein, and how whiteness has always been the gauge, the measure. Even though whiteness itself changes, it's still the the same measure, right? The vessel may change shape, but the vessel still exists, right? And in this case, it's whiteness. Um, So yeah, 100% agree. I do have a question. um, And Jennifer, you talked about it a little bit before, but I kind of want to start at the basics, like, because I'm always going to be referencing decolonizing and responsible pedagogy and all of that. And so much of that is predicated on self-reflection and reflexivity and and all of that good stuff. Despite what the New York Times op-ed section may tell you about lived experience, I think an essential part of decolonizing is the reflection on the self. And so I was wondering, how did y'all get into this specific topic? Aside from the utility in, in decolonizing, I think it's just really interesting to ask 
how scholars get involved, right? Like we sort of fall into these sort of specific projects. And then the next thing you know, it's been 10 years. So how did you all get started in um, looking at Mexican-American curanderismo specifically? Great question. And and I, yes, and how I get this one a lot. And, and I always try to start if I do talks talking about how I came to this project, because I'm clearly not obviously Mexican-American. I'm a cultural outsider. And I came to this project really with an interest in, in Teresa Urrea. So I um, I got a hold of that book by William Curry Holden called Teresita, which is very much a hagiography. Hey but I worked at a bookstore and um, I, I mean, I grew up Catholic, but, and I'm interested in the history of women and in the really actually religion and spiritual spirituality. And he, my coworker was just like, "Oh, you should read this." It was in the Texana section, and I'm like, "What? What's this?" And so I, I read it. And for those of you that are familiar, I'm sure everyone who's familiar with this book, so it's definitely a different kind of history, but based on actually quite a bit of research, but I just, that was my entry into it. And so when I got this book, I read it, I was like, this is really interesting. And I just curiously wanted to know more about her and about what she did, that kind of healing practice and how was it Catholic. And so I had just started graduate school and unlike my cohort in graduate school, I did not have a clear idea of what I wanted to research. I just was one of those students that was like, a a lot of things are interesting. I like women. I like things on the margins or whatever. And so my advisor at the time, which was David Weber, he was, he was like, well, why don't you do like a paper? Do you dig a little deeper into Teresita, see what's been written about her? And really Israel, that was my foray into it. And then of course I learned that, oh, other people have written about her. And she's got this incredible story. And then as I just read more about Curanderismo and I took this class at UNM, which is where I met Brett and met other people there. And then learned about Don Pedrito, Nino Fidencio, you know, the other healers. So for me, that just was the path. And and I th- thank you for asking this question, because I think self-reflection is important. And I'll just say at several points along my journey, I didn't know if I should do this project because it's not my culture. Right. And I so I, I asked my friends that were Mexican-American professors, at people I met at conferences. I mean, I did try to be annoying about it, but what I felt like, I know we're all academics, but I, I am a spiritual person and praying, you know, about it too, or things like, is this right? Because if it's not, I don't want to enter. And so, um, and I, and it was one curandera that I've got to give a shout out to. You might even know her, Daniela Lopez. She's from the Valley. Anyway, she's getting her PhD in San Antonio, but she had read an article I published about Don Pedrito several years ago and reached out to me and introduced herself that she's a curandera. She liked the way that I wrote about him and we're still friends. And so that for me was you know, kind of one of those signs that, okay, but I mean, the, the cautionary t- words I always got was, was, were this, like, if you're respectful and if you know those kinds of boundaries, right. And you respect, that's the most important thing. So anyway, it's what I tried to bring to my work and still try to bring, I probably fail sometimes, but I try to just always be conscious of, of that. So, but it's really important and something I think about actually quite a bit. So thank you for asking. Beautiful. Thank you. Brett, you're up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. Well, when when I was just right out of high school, I had an opportunity to go live in Argentina for a year doing some like community volunteering and things. And I I got I fell in with a group of liberationist priests out like in a suburb of Buenos Aires, not a very rich suburb, a town near Buenos Aires. And so I, I got really captivated by kind of their liberationist tactics and theologies and things like that. I myself grew up Protestant. I am a Presbyterian uh, minister. 
I wasn't at the time I was a kid, but um, anyway, I was really captivated by these guys. I came back and, and majored in Latin American studies at college and ended up becoming a Presbyterian minister. And as part of my life as a, as a pastor, I ended up going to grad school at Arizona State in American religious history and simultaneously working as the pastor of a Spanish-speaking Presbyterian church in Phoenix of a group of Yaqui native people who had been evangelized early in the 20th century. So these, their, their parents and grandparents had become Presbyterian. And so I was their pastor. Then I got really involved with, with them. I got involved with a lot of different things. And, and I, I really wanted to study because of this liberationist influence as a youth and the people I was serving in my parish I really wanted to study people's devotional stories. And I guess I've always found my own Presbyterianism to be a little dry. So I, I was more interested in Catholic history. Um, I wanted to study Catholic stories from Latin America and then more of, of the moment Mexican-American stories as I was in Phoenix and, and in Arizona. And at first, I didn't know that it was going to be healing or curanderismo. I got interested in, in just folk devotions, people's devotions. And I think I think early on in that process, I realized that devotions almost 100% of the time are motivated by a, a desire or a absolute need for healing, either for yourself or for someone you love. And once I started thinking like, well, well these popular devotions are about healing, it was just one other step to start thinking about curanderismo and, and realizing that there was a story to tell there that hadn't been told, at least in the way I ended up working on it, and kind of went from there. So for me, it's been, you know, ever since I was a, a young person, sort of a, a, a fascination with, with Latin American history. And then because of different, because of that fascination, different doors opened up for me to like have these really meaningful religious and personal relationships with, with Mexican-American people. And that kind of just developed into the scholar that I am. But yeah, there's always room for more self-reflection. That's There's no doubt about that. Thank you. I loved hearing that. Whenever I go to a gallery conference, I just feel like it's healthy, too, to see people from lots of different backgrounds studying Latinx religion or or studying feminist religion or something like that. It shouldn't. It, I, I like it when there's a lot of people in the room. I think that's that's the best. And I'm excited that I feel like even in the years that I've been studying Latinx religion, I feel like that's gotten to be more the case. And, and I, I'm glad. So Jennifer, now you've got this book on curanderismo out. I'm curious, what's next for you? You know, that's no, it's a great question. And I, and I should be more prepared to answer that question, but I, you know, I'm still, my brain and my self is really still kind of in the book. And I think I've had so many good book or interesting book talks conversations that a couple of things have like come up like there's a couple other little pieces that I'm still kind of working on and I think you know for the panel that I think we're going to do um, like there's some there's a, some more research that I'm doing so I I kind of am just at this moment still kind of just open but there's a lot of things that I am interested in a colleague and I at um, Metro State University of Denver are working on like an open access reader for this class that we teach there called Multicultural America and we're both really interested in the history of segregation in Denver, um, which there's not a lot specifically written on. So, um, and I really am getting more interested in like local history, having moved to Denver. So I've been trying to really dig into like things locally and I've learned so much from my students, but I'm looking kind of at the history of race and segregation is one thing that I've been doing a lot of reading on um, in the past couple of years. So I don't know where that's going to go, but my brain is also there a little bit as well. That sounds really fascinating. I'm excited to see more in the future. What about you, Brad? 
Yeah, Brett. Your turn. Well, my turn. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm at the beginning of a of a new research project that that I hope does eventually turn into a book manuscript. We'll see. I'm really going back to these anthropologists that we've we've drug a little bit here. Um, from my my dissertation research, I felt like I had some loose ends with those those people. So what I'm, I'm returning to look beyond those guys to the the way that Mexican American religion has intersected or been influenced by public health programs in the in 20th century United States. The foundation of health clinics in in urban and also sort of rural areas that were specifically put together to serve Mexican Americans to kind of get them healthy and also as sort of a, an assimilating kind of project. Uh, and the oftentimes surprisingly overt rhetoric about religion that was used in government documents of, about public health so um, and Mexican Americans. So I'm interested in that. And I think an aspect of that that I'm, I'm learning a lot about and still have a lot to learn is also uh, what role um, public health and, 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 and the beginning of what we might call kind of a, a, a multicultural psychoanalysis or psychotherapy played as well in dealing with ideas of religion and mental health um, among Mexican-American populations. So I'm kind of heading in that direction. Very cool. Um, just to say, Brett, like just to give some like shout out, I can't believe like all the scholarship you've done, which is I have all of your I don't have your newest one, but I'll get it. It's just really impressive and inspiring. Okay. And it sounds like your new work. I'm, I'm thinking about like also public health projects in Mexico. I'm sure like that those comparisons between. Yeah. Really, really super interesting. Yeah. I mean, that, that is very fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, it's been great. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at the clock and I see that we are coming up on 50 minutes already. So I think this is probably a great place to wrap up. But I really, really appreciate each of you being here today to chat about Gran Turismo. And I hope that our listeners are just as excited about this episode as I am. So thank you for joining me here today. It has been an absolute pleasure getting to chat with you. And I hope that we will be able to have you back again very soon. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yes. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much. It's been a sincere pleasure. Thanks again to Brett, Jennifer, and Israel for joining us here today to talk about Coranderismo. I hope that you all have enjoyed this episode. And of course, head over to our website at religiousstudiesproject.com where you can find out more information about this episode as well as a transcript. Also head over to social media to let us know what you thought. We'd love to hear your comments and ideas. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, as always, we appreciate any support that you are able to give to help keep the RSP up and running to the standards that you have come to know and love, we hope. So please do consider signing up to become a patron at patreon.com slash project RS, where you can donate as little as $1 a month. It would go a long way in helping to support the work here. Or you could even give us a one-time donation via PayPal. But of course, if you are unable to support us financially, do please like and share our posts on social media. We would greatly appreciate it. And until next time, all that's left to say is thanks for listening. 
The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Jaden Bartashius. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening.